Uh, all right, well, I've got a couple numbers on the board because I know you guys want to know. So five and three, that is the regular season record of the 5B Mavs coached by the Dowd, coached by Dowd, Sam's team. Um, we finished, uh, so the way, there are, you know how big PSA is? Do you know how many teams and kids are involved in PSA? A lot. So they take all the teams and they mix it up so they have these manageable um, tournaments. So you have like a one-weekend tournament or whatever. And so uh, this is our record in the tournament. And so the first game was on Saturday. And uh, it was against a really evenly matched team, Corumdale Academy. You guys know where that is on Independence? Right around the corner from my house. Right, right around the corner from us. Um, and it's a school team. And they had 12 kids, and they were coaching them like a school team, which, which means they, their best kids played the whole game, three of them. And then they rotated the other nine kids in a few minutes here and there. Well, that's not the way you coach a rec team, right? So whatever, that's fine. And uh, we're up by three. It's two seconds left. Ball's on their end of the court. I call, call the kids over. I love these kids I'm coaching. And I said, okay, number one rule, don't foul. Don't foul. I don't care what you do, don't foul. <laughs> so, so our biggest... <laughs> Foul exactly. So, biggest kid on the team. He's standing at half court. I don't know why he's standing at half court. I went on the other end of the court. Uh, kid, this uh, kid rolls the ball like he should and uh, picks it up, starts running, heaves this prayer from half court. It was not, these are 12, 11 year olds. It's not going anywhere into the basket. And Sean, bless his heart, came down. I thought he was going to put him in the hospital. Like, he's like, whammin' him. So the kid goes to the line. First bucket, first free throw, swish. I'm like, oh, God, we're going to overtime. Second second uh, shot, swish. Like, and it's so loud because all these venues have like 15 courts, you know. And the, their parents are going crazy and our parents are going crazy. Our kids are like, oh, no, we're going to overtime. Third shot. It's, I thought for sure it was in. It bounces at the back of the rim straight up. To the left of the, the left side of the rim, straight up, right side of the rim, rolls around and falls out. And that poor kid was in tears. So I, I ran over to him and I'm like, you just made the two hardest shots to make in all of basketball and you almost made the third. So it was, so anyway, so we won that game. We go to so the next game. We go to the team that had beaten us in the last um, game of the regular season. Really close game. That game was a two-point game. So this one, uh, so I'm going to brag on Sam for a minute. Sam's, Sam's the point guard. He's the most competitive child I've ever met. Had a great game. He's the high scorer. I mean, he's, he's really the general out on the court. It's really fun to play with him. Um, and their best player couldn't, couldn't stop him, and he was getting really frustrated. So that kid fouls out. <laughs> on a, like, Sam's driving for a layup, and this kid slaps his arm and his mother starts screaming because she didn't think it was a foul. And I'm like, Oh my God. And, 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 and Sam came over and he showed me like the hand mark on his arm. So, um, <laughs> it's, uh, this game we're up by three again and they have nine seconds left. So I said, don't press, do not foul, <laughs> go drop back into your zone and just, just challenge every shot. So they get the ball, dribble down, dribble down, dribble down, and at the buzzer, I swear to God, it was at the buzzer, 
this kid, it was the prettiest shot. From And he was probably, uh, like this is the three-point line, he's probably a foot behind it. I didn't think there was any prayer. It was going to go anywhere close. But he, beautiful shot. I mean, it was like in, it was like in that NCAA tournament. <laughs> Goes right towards the bucket. Perfect form. He was a righty. He went to lefty. And hits the back of the rim. Bounces straight up. Hits the left. Bounces up. Hits the right. <laughs> circles and falls out. And we won! <laughs> and so uh, the funniest part about that is Sam has knows a kid on this team. And after the regular season uh, finale, when they beat us, he came home and said, Dad, their coach said that we're their dream matchup in the tournament. I'm like, okay, well, now it's on. So we put in a, <laughs> we, like, we installed a zone, and we put in a couple plays. We had four practices before the tournament. And so we're, we're reminiscing at the end of the tournament when he's got you know, his number one trophy and all that. And I'm like, you know, the, the, the kicker for me is that coach. I, I can't believe he would say that to his kids. And, and Sam started grinning. And he's like, he didn't really say that, Dad. <laughs> he, said, he said, I needed the team to get fired up. And so, you know that stinker? He, so, did anybody see the Michael Jordan special? The uh, Michael Jordan documentary uh, during COVID? So, Michael Jordan used to manufacture offen- like things that people offended him by. Like, he made up a whole story about how this rookie told him to his face that he couldn't, couldn't cover him, and he scored 50 on him. And the rookie's like, I didn't say that to Michael Jordan. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and, and he remembered that, and he wanted to get his team fired up, and so he created this story. And I'm like, buddy, I almost went over and told that coach, that's what you get for telling your team. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is, it's so fun. It's so fun. <laughs> Uh, no, that's serendipity. Yeah, I don't, God's not all that involved in our basketball games. Um, okay, so the other thing, gosh, the news, y'all. I mean, it's just really, really bad. So at the 845 service this morning, I had made the mistake of, y'all know I was a Russian major. Um, and I've spent a fair, fair amount of time in Russia in the 90s and have followed Putin's career in particular for a long time. And um, I, I'm still serviceable with my Russian like when I hear somebody being interviewed in Russian, and I was, I was telling Beverly, like right now a third of my Twitter feed is in Russian, like original sources. Um, and this morning I made the mistake of right before worship, just look, looking at the news. I'm, I've, I'm kind of obsessed about the news right now. And um, saw the whole thing about Putin putting the nukes on deterrence. So the, the first step in escalation. So it was, really, it was really heavy. So at the early service, I, I, instead of doing a moment of silence, I said a prayer, and it, it just it was too heavy. It was too heavy. Plus, I called it the Ukraine, which is like playing Risk when I was a teenager. I know it's Ukraine, not the Ukraine. I, I corrected myself, but that's so annoying. I know better than that. Um, but then after that opening prayer or whatever, then we sang, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, and the kids were singing. And I'm like, okay, okay, we can... We can acknowledge the reality of something that's hard going on in the world and still be clear, like, who gets the final say, right? And it ain't the guy in Moscow. So um, I felt like the next two services were a little better, a little lighter. But y'all were at the early service. It was heavy, man. Or felt heavy to me. I don't know how it felt to y'all.
Yeah, and I, sh- I know I know better than to check the news right before I walk into worship. Because once I start talking about it, then I, I, I'm just too emotionally attached to that whole region of the world. So that's a better one. I'm, I'm way better off writing something ahead of time. Yeah, matter of fact, so Glenn and I have been talking. I think the next, I think this week's column is going to be about refugees and is going to mention um, the way we can support them through that the church or it was a church that we partnered with. Yeah. So we've got some the congregation. If you don't know, has got personal ties, uh, like like connections to Poland, which is where a lot of um, obviously refugees are headed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the world isn't a refugee crisis, has been since for a while, since Syrian war. So, and then that gets dicey, you know. So, what well, was heartening at the Romanian border, all, I don't know if you saw this footage, all these cars, like all, all these civilians are just lining up at the border to like basically adopt refugees. It's remarkable. And then all over Europe, there are these rallies. It, it looks like the old, like, Solidarity Days. Do you remember that in the 80s? Um, so, you know, I, I was texting with a buddy last night. Um, my, my fear is not about, uh, it's about one man, honestly. I mean, I, I, this is not the Russian people. This is not the Russian military. This is one dude who's not a good dude, and he's got nukes. And, you know, he's increasingly isolated, and um, he's, I mean, it's one thing to be kind of an authoritarian figure. It's another thing to be a totally isolated authoritarian figure who's got a paranoid hatred of the West, specifically us, has for his whole life. So, anywho, the first draft of the um, column that I wrote on <laughs> for Thursday was longer and had more stuff about Putin. And he went to Leningrad State University, the same place I studied uh, 10 years before. He was a law student there. Um, and, of course, he was a KGB colonel, and he's... he's it's really about that one guy. So, I don't know. I think, I mean, all shall be well. That's what our faith tells us. God gets the final word on all evil, sin, suffering, death, all of it. So that's going to be okay one way or the other. But, I mean, I do think this is as tense as things have gotten since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that's a that's a studied opinion. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's been this bad since then. So... Um, all right, well, our, my plan is to spend a couple of, talk about a couple of chapters from the travelogue, which is this, an early tar- turning point in Luke. Uh, we, we covered a fair amount of ground two weeks ago. Um, did y'all have anything you wanted to follow up on from the Sermon on the Plain? Any kind of open questions or thoughts that we didn't get a chance to get to? I know it was a couple weeks ago, and a lot has happened in the world since then. If not, we're going to start with 9.51. So we've, got, we've been talking about in Luke, there's a, I don't know if I've written it specifically this way, but. So in Luke, geography really is theology. And. Uh, we talked about how the the gospel begins in the temple, it ends in the temple, and then Acts picks up in Jerusalem and then goes out to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> Here, there's this very obvious and significant shift where Jesus, uh, very early in the gospel, so we're only on chapter 9, it's 24 chapter gospel, uh, gospel um, 
like turns his face, sets his face for his final destiny, or final earthly destiny is the way to put that. Um, and all of this really important teaching, setting aside the Sermon on the Plain, which we talked about last time, his, his most famous stories, um, the most famous encounters in his life, all happen on this road to Jerusalem. And I love, uh, we did in our, um, what do we call it? I'm sorry, what series? The Troubling Passages series? We, we did this, this section we're covering la, uh, the last Sunday. Um, once he makes this turn, it's like, this is a great storyteller now, so it's like the, the sense of drama is heightened, the sense of tension is heightened the closer he gets to Jerusalem, because, of course, we all know how that part of the story ends. So when, in verse 51, when the days drew up, drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Uh, we know what that means. And so as the story unfolds, we as the reader have this kind of sense of unease and tension. The other Gospels tell the story a little differently. When you read John, um, there's three Passovers in John, so he's constantly going to and from Jerusalem. It's not like this, it's not this, this final sense of impending doom when he goes to Jerusalem. In uh, Matthew, there are these five long discourses. Like the, just the way that story is told is so is is so different. Here, the sense of drama is pretty pretty keen. Um, so he's going to um, and all along the way be instructing the disciples, and he's going to have these encounters, like with Zacchaeus, um, with Martha and Mary, in a very famous exchange that's only in Luke. Uh, actually, we're going to read it today. That all happens on the way. I mentioned in that, this is what I was going to say, I lost my train of thought. Um, the way is what early Christianity was called before we called it Christianity. I kind of like that. I don't kind of like that, I really like that. I think that gives that term really does say a lot about what the Christian life's all about. You know, it's not, I mean, obviously we have doctrines that we think are important, but it's not, not for, it is not first and foremost a set of intellectual arguments to which we assent. Like in our very Western world, that's what we tend to think of the faith as being. But really, it's, it was intended to be a path that we walked behind him. And uh, so that, that, that will come up several times in this section, this extended section. So, 951. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. Uh, and y'all, is everybody familiar with why Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other? I mean, they had, they're, they're descendants from the same tree, but they had different practices and different centers of worship. And so if you were, by this stage of the game, by the first century, uh, Jews hated Samaritans and vice versa. We're going to hear the parable of the Good Samaritan here in a minute, but it's kind of he's kind of setting it up because they're they're going through Samaria and they don't welcome them. So, on their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. That implies it's not their fault, right? He's he's got other business to attend to. <laughs> and when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, "Do you want us to kill him?" <laughs> Like five minutes after he said, love your enemies, <laughs> pray 
<laughs> for those who persecute you. Oh, yeah, but okay, sure, we'll do that. But then, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Jesus said, first of all, stay in your lane. Second of all, you don't have that kind of authority. Third of all, no. It's, a, it's the opposite of what I just told you to do. Uh, well, that's all implied in the Greek in, that, in verse 55. But he turned and rebuked them. <laughs> and then he went on to another village. As they were going along the road, that literally says they're the way. As they were going along the way, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So he's saying there, oh, you want to follow me, do you? Well, it ain't all rainbows and unicorns, sir. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So in that sermon a couple weeks ago, we talked about how he's developing. I mean, that's not that doesn't sound like a Jesus we know. Right. That doesn't sound like the Sunday school of Jesus. It doesn't sound like Jesus who who um, forgives the thief on the cross. The one who says, oh, Zacchaeus, come on down and have dinner with me or I'm going to your house today. Um, and yet that is a part of his ministry. And uh, it's it is a little bit dissonant with the way that Luke portrays Jesus. But this is all of a piece here that he is he's turned. He set his face to Jerusalem he knows uh, how this part of the story is going to end. And while he's not necessarily in a hurry to get there, um, he knows that that moment is coming. And because it's coming, everybody who wants to follow him has got to be with him for this section, this part of the journey. And for Luke, this is a contextual thing. So, I've talked, we've talked about this a few times. It's this this three epic narrative of our salvation history, where you have Israel, you have Jesus, and you have the church. And Israel, the story is told in the Old Testament. The story of Jesus is told in the Gospel, and the church is told in Acts, and then beyond. Obviously, we're still living in the third epic right now. So that this section of the road is a very brief one in the grand scheme of things. Um, but it's a very difficult one. And he's got a very high expectation for those who are going to walk with him on this part of the way. they they got to be all in. Okay. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, 
we wipe off in protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. And then there's this, yeah, this shows up in a couple places. So, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, then you would have, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. So Tyre and Sidon were Gentile regions. So he's saying, if you remember in, in uh, the fourth chapter, he, he kept alluding to these Gentile um, communities who were like ministered to, I think is the way to put that, by Elisha and Elijah. And his point is that God has always been looking beyond just the narrow confines of Israel, that the, that the plan, God's plan of salvation was always going to include people beyond the, the initial group, uh, group who was called. And so um, what we, we assume, this is something we've talked about before, that Luke is a Gentile Christian, like a convert to Christianity from uh, some other faith, pagan faith probably, or polytheistic faith, uh, and he's writing to a Gentile audience. It's clear that Jesus' ministry always pushed beyond the boundaries of his own community, but different, different gospel authors emphasize different things based on their own community, based on their own, their own audience. So Matthew, who is writing to most scholars believe is a Jewish Christian audience, quotes a lot of Old Testament scripture directly, and then has a lot to say about how the, uh, the scriptures in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. This author sees the same general progression of our salvation history, but he's not really all that focused here because his congregation doesn't, that's not their language, right? That's not, yeah, they don't, that's not their concern. So this is part, this is in that, um, in that vein but at the judgment, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me, and whoever rejects you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name, even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. <laughs> Don't get too full of yourselves, you 70. You're doing work because the Holy Spirit is empowering you to do work. That's fantastic. Do that good work, but just remember where the glory goes. At that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Again, this is this very important recurring theme, the role of the Spirit. Uh, and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one who knows the Son, I see, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, Jesus said to them privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, but did not see it. And uh, to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. 
So then we get one of the, I mean, one of the greatest hits, right? What would you put on Jesus' greatest hits? Obviously, Good Samaritan. What else? The ones that like immediately come to mind. Prodigal. That's coming up a little later in the same section. What else? Raising of Lazarus. Yep. The woman who touched his garment. It's interesting. And this, yes, I'm on board with all those. We don't, we don't really think of the parables necessarily, right? I mean, the, there's the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the wedding banquet. Like he uses all of these, um, like those parables, like truly, the truly, like the, the ones that are, this, this says the parable of the Good Samaritan, but it's really the story of the Good Samaritan. A parable takes something from common everyday life and uh, tells a story that has deeper meaning that is not immediately obvious in that, in that, in that um, example. Uh, and what's interesting about that is, and that's in Matthew a lot. Matthew's got a ton of those, but they're all agriculture. They're all agricultural, and they're all, they're all. It's not just that they're agricultural; it's that they're first-century Palestine agricultural. And so, um, I've never preached a parable series because I, I don't know. Those aren't, those aren't the ones that really jump out the most to me. I mean, I've, I've preached on parables, of course, but uh, it, but to his audience, to his original audience, I'm talking about not not the later gospel interpretation that because they you know they're taking this material and. Um, writing it in such a way that's most meaningful to their particular audiences, but I'm talking about the the, the original in the year 30 audience. That they almost certainly resonated most with those agricultural um, examples because by that point of Israel's history, agriculture had been foundational for the economy for 10,000 years. Everybody everybody grew up in that in that era. And, um, I mean, in that milieu, you know, they knew, like when you said the mustard seed, everybody knows what a mustard seed is. I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I could, in theory, know what a mustard seed is, but. Okay, so this, I think, my point is, I think the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son, the rich man and Lazarus, is nobody's favorite, but that's coming later. It's another, it's a vivid story that he's telling. Luke offers these ones that still resonate with us all these years later. And this, of course, is a classic. So just then, a lawyer stood up to test him. This is only in Luke. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I bet most of us could tell this story, basically, and not miss too many details. Um, Okay, so then Jesus said to him, well, what's written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's in Leviticus 19. 1918, I believe. And he said to him, yeah, you've given the right answer. Do this and you'll live. But wanting to justify himself. <laughs> yeah, we are, he's like, okay, well, let me ask you a follow-up question. <laughs> He asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? So the question here is, to whom do I owe goodwill? Good deeds. Um, Love, in the sense that it's defined in Leviticus 19. So not like the love we have for family and 
our romantic love, not even the love we have for God, but the kind of brotherly love. Uh, you know what I mean? I don't mean that that's gender specific, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, and Jesus replied, this has to be one of the greatest stories of all time. I would put prodigal number one on all these, on this whole list, I'd put good Samaritan number two. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And going down, if you guys have been there, you know Jer- Jericho is the lowest city in the world. It's below sea level. And Jerusalem's relatively high. I was actually kind of surprisingly high for everybody who's been there. So it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a drop from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by, by, passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, you know, one of those so-and-sos you wanted to call down thunder and fire from heaven 15 minutes ago, while traveling, came near. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he gave out two denarii, that's a a full day's wage, uh, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, obviously, the one who showed him mercy. So Jesus says, go and do likewise. But he, he... you notice he changes the definition of the neighbor there. So the neighbor is not the one who receives the kindness. The neighbor is the one who's giving the kindness. That tricky Jesus turns our expectations on our heads. In many ways, first, by pushing the, the definition of neighbor. Second, by giving like the most odious example that a faithful Jew could have received in the first century. Um, and then third, by just making it essentially a commandment to go, go be like the Samaritan. So I'm sure you've done this thought ex- experiment before. I mean, who, who would be a Samaritan for us? Like, who are the bad guys for us? Putin. Oh, my God. Now you're really going to push me on this one. <laughs> no, not that guy. He doesn't count. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really an interesting one. As divided as these times are, whoever is not of our political persuasion. That's a good one. Especially, I mean, the climate that the past few years, say the past, I don't know, five years, six years, I don't know, something like that. So it's gotten pretty bad like that, right? Yeah, where you just can't even bring it up. Yeah, that's a, that's a better example than the Taliban. Like, Taliban are just like criminals, right? I mean, these are like terrorists. In this case, it's just someone who really looks at the world very differently than you. Right? Exactly. But I actually think most people could give the outline of the story. That's how powerful Jesus is. I mean, listen, shout out to our Lord. Because it's a, it's a, it's a story, that even though it requires some, a little bit of interpretation, you have to know a little bit of context to know how, how big a deal it is. Still, it's... It's just a memorable uh, way of reminding us that our that loving kindness we've been talking about the last three weeks in worship is not just due to our family members. 
I think that's absolutely what we know. I mean, I've read this story a thousand times, at least a thousand times. I'm not exaggerating. And I always still immediately go to uh, the neighbor is the guy who's you know hurt, dying on the side of the road. But interestingly, the legal system gets it right, right? Because you're expected to be the good Samaritan. Like you're, the, the expectation of behavior is that you're neighborly enough to be the one rendering aid when need be. Is that what good Samaritan laws do? Yeah. Keep you from getting sued. Gosh, I learned something today. I mean, it says something about our society that you have to have a law to be nice to not get sued. Like, but if I don't love Putin, I feel like Jesus is going to let me off the hook. I, mean, I feel like he'd be like, "Yeah, I don't like that guy either." <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, I mean, there is that whole, and you know, in ethics, it's all kinds of studies about. What, so, what's that? So, um, do you guys know how much do you know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer? You know that name? So. He, he he believed uh, that it was a sin because he participated in the plot to kill Hitler, and he he felt like it was a sin, but he was confident Jesus would forgive him. Like in the in the grand scheme of things, that this the this um, immoral act that he was pursuing was um, the most loving thing for the most number of people. Yeah, that's a really that's an inter- it's a an important aspect of Christian ethics for sure. And so, I mean, you're, uh, well, I know we're kind of joking around about it, but that really is, it's a serious topic that theologians have thought a lot about because we have this really high uh, ethic. Um, I, I'm not a pacifist. I've told you guys that. I'm a just war theory guy, always have been. And it's not because I think war is ever moral. <laughs> I do think just, uh, it's because it's sometimes required to, to um, I mean, very few instances in history, but... Uh, what is the greater greater good? What is the most loving thing for the most loving people? If, and if some it, like um, uh, saving the Jewish population from the Holocaust certainly would fall into that category. But you can't do that without tremendous harm being done. Like so, that's but that's, those are all really important conversations for sure. But this, I just. Um, it's just really hard to overstate how incredible this story is. <laughs> uh, some parts of scripture I read and think, okay, I guess that was inspired. I could see that. That's, you know, there's a lot of humanity in that. And sometimes uh, there are parts that are just so sublime that there's, it's almost like it was written by the hand of God. And I would put, you know, some of the prophets there, some of John for sure. Here is this, to me, it's an, it's a, just the, I don't know if it's the most beautiful, but it's an incredibly beautiful example of the incarnation of God in a human being. <laughs> that a human being could come up with a story like this that means so much to so many billions of people over the course of human history that these 12 verses can still be like a guiding light. Like we, we there is part of us, all of us, who take our faith seriously, so everyone in this room when we're writing a check for somebody or when we're for some cause or when we're volunteering at a soup kitchen or vault or, I mean, pick it the long list of things that we do. I'm convinced that there's part something in our, in our uh, spirit, in our minds, like the nudge of the Holy spirit is hearing Jesus say, go and do likewise. 
Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. And when we're um, uh, serving people who are very hard to serve in some cases, I don't know if you guys have ever been in that scenario where you're working on, like, like we were a couple of times, we were on working on houses as a youth group. And uh, it's hard not to get into this thing where are they, are they grateful? Are they appreciative of what we're doing? And are they, uh, gosh, they're driving a nicer car than I am. Am I really supposed to be here? All these judgments that we have in our heads all the time. But what overrides that is this 2,000-year-old command at the end of this incredibly beautiful story where Jesus is saying, no, just go. Just go and do likewise. You, you, do, you do your part. <laughs> I'll take care of the judging. <laughs> I just, I love it, man. And then what immediately follows that is this, this section um, that's, again, unique to Luke. Now, as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, uh, can she not help out? Like, what is the deal? <laughs> do you not care that my sister left me to do all this work by myself? Tell her then to help me. Y'all, please. There's, I, I, there can't be anybody in this room that hadn't felt that way at one point or another. Right? Certainly all the older siblings in the room. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Martha has chosen the better part. I think that's the one, that's the word that grates on us. The better part. Which one? Uh, Mary one, yeah. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. It would have been better if he'd said... What she's doing is important, too. You know, yeah, throwing yeah. the better there, Jesus. Come on now. <laughs> okay. So then he gives the Lord's Prayer teaching. This is, this is different than in Matthew. So in Matthew, the Lord's Prayer comes as part of that Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Luke has broken it out. And he's kept the Sermon on the Plain portion, just these really, um, well, we covered it a couple weeks ago, the really tough um, kind of direct commandments, and he, and he breaks out the Lord's Prayer separately. So he's praying in a certain place. This, by the way, I know it sounds obvious, but this is a theme, more so in Luke than in the other uh, Gospels, the prayer life of Jesus. It's, it comes up over and over and over again. We all know that Jesus prayed. Luke, For Luke, it's particularly important, so he points it out a lot. He was praying in a certain place, and after he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. In Matthew, it's debts. Here, it's sins. Because, again, this is another uh, theme in Luke. Again, uh, and I'm going to keep saying, uh, it's a theme of Jesus' ministry in general, but it's especially highlighted in Luke comes up over and over again, forgiveness of sins. You would expect Luke, who cares very much about poor people and people on the margins, to say debts. I would. But in this case, like this uh, point is very important in forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of our sins as we forgive everyone indebted to us. And do not bring us to the time of trial. And in this section here, this 5 through 8, is only in Luke. And he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend... 
and you go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, Don't bother me. The door's already been locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he'll get up and give him whatever he needs. So stick with it. Like, don't don't take the first no. I don't think there's anything particularly profound there. It's just unique to Luke. So I say to you, ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, <laughs> know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the, Holy, will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the one who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Belzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, kept demanding from him a sign from heaven. But he said what they were thinking and said to them, he knew what they were thinking, and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself becomes a desert, and house falls on house. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul or Belzebul. Now, if I cast out demons by Belzebul, by whom do your exorcists cast them out? Therefore, they will be uh, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out the demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his castle, his property is safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it wanders through waterless regions looking for a resting place, but not finding any, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds it it swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other uh, spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and live there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. While he was saying this, A woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. That's weird. Uh, But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So, this whole thing about demons. Um, Well, let me just ask you. What do you all think about all this demon talk? You chalk it up to um, an ancient way of understanding, like mental health. Okay, that's a that's a common interpretation. Totally faithful, not judging that at all. Um, some some were raised in traditions where uh, spiritual warfare was taken very seriously. I was raised Catholic. I mean, there's a whole uh, department at the Vatican devoted to exorcisms. Um, and but even that department does a, a lot of work to make to address mental health issues first. Um, so, what's interesting in the old in the New Testament, and I think uh, a lot of modern Christians and, to, and probably postmodern Christians, although postmodernism is more comfortable with um, gray. 
like things that we don't understand, mystery. Um, but I think this may be the thing we struggle with the most. I think I, most of us can see Jesus walking on water. Most of us can see the miracle of the, of the uh, multiplication of the fish and the loaves. Um, Jesus still in a storm, like all these, all those kind of natural things. He's God. We assume God can do whatever God chooses to do. I think what we're, we're less comfortable with is the 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 notion, the idea of Satan, the, the question of um, angels and demons. So I'm going to spend five minutes on this, unless you don't want to talk about it. Okay, okay. So in in the Old Testament, in the Book of Job. There's a figure called Hasatan, and Hasatan is uh, in the Book of Job not a bad guy. He's the he's God's prosecutor basically, and he goes to and fro over the earth looking for trouble basically. And he's the one that he and it's Satan and God that have a bet that Job loses. <laughs> this figure is part of the heavenly court. When the time, at the time Job is written, which is a very ancient poem that ends up getting put down finally on papyrus, probably during the exile. So, but it's a, it's an old old story. There's not a whole lot about demons and Satan in the Old Testament, really. There's some, but it's uh, there's not like a, not like it shows up in the New Testament. There's this. What scholars call the intertestamental period, between the writings of the vast majority of the Old Testament and the New Testament, where a whole lot of theology develops around angels and demons. And of course, uh, in the tradition, the um, the thinking is that. I mean, we all, I think we all probably believe in angels on some, in, some, in some way. Um, and the idea is that these are um, uh, heavenly figures who have some of the same emotions human beings do, including pride, and that the guy who becomes, or the one who becomes Satan, um, is kicked out of heaven because he wants to, like, he, he, he gets too big. He wants to be in charge. And there's a fair amount of that thought and theology that is and writing um, that we assume is kind of lost to history that doesn't show up in the Bible. So that in uh, by the time we get to the Gospels, you have this mano y mano between Satan and Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry. This coming like next week, the first week of Lent is always the story of the temptation in the wilderness, and. Um, there are a couple of ways you can go on that. You can, you can absolutely in, uh, interpret it as a contextual story um, tied very much to the understanding of the time. Or you can take a more orthodox view that Bible says it. That's what happened. There's a, there's a spiritual war going on, and there's all kinds of stuff, uh, uh, material in the New Testament I'm talking about outside of Revelation. Revelation is its own crazy thing. That talks about this battle between good and evil. And um, I, I tend to be in the more orthodox camp, but I'm also, but, I, but it doesn't, it's not, a, it's not a significant enough piece of our theology 
that I think you need to worry about it, honestly. I mean, I think which, however, however you make sense of it um, is okay. Because ultimately, our salvation is in Christ. We're following him. It's his teachings and miracles and example and incarnation that, are, that put us in a right relationship with God. And all the cosmic stuff that goes on <clears throat> is uh, really secondary for us to our relationship with God. But when you get into questions of evil, the source of evil, the propagation of evil, um, this is just a really difficult section, part of Christian theology. And like in ordination interviews, it's the, it's, which I just did this week for, um, I've done this for, this was year 10. Uh, it's, it, people are, some Methodist preachers are very orthodox, especially the ones that were raised in other traditions. John Wesley himself was very orthodox on this. Um, lots of, especially younger pastors, tend to be more kind of uh, understand them metaphorically more than uh, kind of literally as they appear in Scripture. And the the tent of Methodist theology is big enough for all that. <clears throat> I'll, I'll tell you this. Um, I've told this. Some of you've heard me tell this story, but it, it was there were two things in seminary that gave me pause. Again, I came out of a tradition where, um, you know, I. I just assumed that there are demons in, in the world and possessions and Satan. I just, that's just part of, the, that's part of how I was raised. Again, I don't worry about it all that much. Um, but we were in systematic theology, and we were studying evil, subject of evil. And there's the way that, that um, course is taught, there's someone who's from a more conservative or orthodox perspective, a professor, and then there's someone who's from a more progressive or liberal perspective, and I was shocked that on this subject, they, they both agreed. They were both kind of in the Orthodox camp. I mean, they had talked about their own experience of um, dealing with people who they conv- were convinced were, uh, I mean, possessed, for, like, for lack of a better term. Or, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't mean that sound dramatic. And Billy, who's uh, deceased, I've told you about Billy Abraham before, um, had like two years before done an exorcism with a Catholic friend of his in, in Ireland. And he said, uh, you know, you Americans, you can believe it you want. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. I, we Irish, we believe in the little people. <laughs> and, and he said, I can tell you what I saw, but I can also tell you this, that uh, every exorcist, every exorcist, every exorcism ever performed in Christian history has relied on the power of Christ, <laughs> right? So you have faith in Christ. Your salvation is in Christ. Your eternal destiny is secure in Christ. You need not fear the darkness. <clears throat> this from a man who was very orthodox and had literally done an exorcism. And I thought, okay, I, I can live with that. Um, and, but then the, mu- the much more startling thing that happened is one day we were in preaching class with Alice McKenzie, actually. Who was, um, <clears throat> and we were, uh, I was talking to a, we were talking to an African-American friend of ours, and she was in the, uh, like the AME tradition, so Methodist, but um, and, and black, the black church. <clears throat> and uh, she, she lived on campus. She was single. She was probably in her 40s at the time. And she said, uh, hey, uh, I had a really bad experience last night. I, had, I was in the parking lot, just, just so you all know. And she was kind of talking to the women in the class because it was a night class and getting back to your car and all that kind of stuff. And 
I mean, it's Highland Park. It's not like it's, it's a tough neighborhood or whatever. But she said, uh, when I was going to, I got out of my car, uh, and this guy um, stopped me. And he started giving me this song and dance about uh, his car wasn't working, and he had, uh, didn't have a cell phone, and he needed to use my phone to call um, the tow truck or whatever. And we're all thinking, oh, my God, he didn't. Dude, you didn't let him, did you? And she said, so I, you know, I, I said, okay, fine, come on up. So I, he, I let him come up to my dorm room, and we're all thinking, no, oh, my gosh, no. And um, she said, we, you know, we got down the hall, and, the, and there was something real off about him. And as we were walking in, I turned around. That's when I saw that he had the demon on him. So I got, went into the apartment, and I slammed the door, and I called the cops. And we said, fuck. You're burying the lead there. What? What? So first of all, I'm glad you're okay. And she was, I mean, she definitely could take care of herself. Um, cops came. Guy was gone. But you, you saw what on him? And uh, she said, so then she started telling us that her call to ministry was spiritual warfare. Like, that's what she did. She goes all over the world. She has her gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is a Methodist tradition. This isn't Pentecostal. This isn't Catholic or Orthodox. This is a this is a, a Methodist tradition. Her um, spiritual gift is is spiritual warfare, and she uh, sees things that other people don't. And she goes all over the world and casts out demons. I mean, it's all over the New Testament. And uh, I thought, okay, here's so here's how I've thought about that ever since. Um, my first read on things like Jesus casting out demons is that it doesn't really matter to me whether he's dealing with someone who's got schizophrenia that they didn't know how to deal with back then, or really there was the you know the demons go into the pig to go over the cliff. I mean, um, whether it literally happens or it's a, a metaphor for something we understand better now doesn't really matter. Um, as a pastor, uh, there have been a couple times in, in 20 years where I've wondered if someone didn't, like, there have been a couple times people really off and I almost called the police. But regardless, if there's a mental, if there's a mental um, health challenge going on, we always refer, refer, refer. We're not, that's not my area of expertise. You want to talk about Jesus? I'm your guy. You need to talk about demons? We've got to call somebody else, whether that's a psychiatrist or my friend who does this for a living, apparently. But I, ever since that time, I, I've just kind of um, accepted the fact that but there's things we aren't going to know this side of heaven, which is okay with me. <laughs> there's plenty that we're not going to know this side of heaven. And this is one of them. So when I come across these, um, you know, these, these stories are sometimes uh, things that drive, I mean, that drive some young people away from the church. Like it seems archaic and quaint and silly and, you know, but I, I, that's not where I am with those stories. I, I just think that it's, uh, uh, there's a whole, there, uh, there are many things that could be going on in those stories. But what the point of the stories is, that Jesus is Lord, and Jesus has power over everything. And whether your um, that power is expressed through the working of the Holy Spirit uh, by a highly trained mental health professional that can help someone heal from multiple personality disorder, schizophrenia, whatever, or um, 
God bless them, the, my friends in, in ministry who uh, take this spiritual warfare seriously. It's okay. Uh, it's, I don't get to ultimately know the answers. That's true. Yeah, if it's true, right? I mean, if it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's funny you should say that. I mean, yeah. The uh, the quicker solution is if it's a demon. <laughs> Mental health challenges are really, really tough. Yeah. Yeah, and I so and I wanted to say one more thing, and I know we're at four thirty. Um, so I, there have been times over the past twenty years where someone has come to me wanting help with a demon that they perceive. And uh, this is not an unusual thing for clergy, even in the Methodist Church, uh, particularly in different cultures. So our our pastors who serve Hispanic churches, for example, where there's a, I mean, there's also a strong Catholic and Pentecostal uh, strain in that community. But uh, demons and angels, that's a that's a thing. That's a that's a part of the theological language, certainly in Hispanic Methodist culture. Um, but not just Hispanic Methodist culture. In, in Africa, the churches in Africa face the same thing. And in some ways, some observers would say there, you know, there's uh, they would again explain it away to kind of a more a more. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say primitive, but I don't mean that in a condescending way. A more primitive understanding of like the the universe. Um, and yet, it's uh, it's something in the New Testament that we do need to wrestle with. Okay, uh, next week I'm going to be on spring break with my kids, so you have one more guest. Um, Teacher, I think it may be Reagan. Not sure exactly. Stephanie, oh, fantastic, Stephanie. Hey, buddy. Um, and then two weeks, I'm back, and then we're. I think we're back together, unless there's some other tournament that this kid gets to play in. So we'll. All right, exactly. Yes. Thank you, guys. Pray for Ukraine this week. God bless you. Go in peace.